Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It is grand to have you all here. I hope that you are ready for tonight. And as I was just telling Discord a moment ago, I'm not sure that I am. Jade says, no cliffhanger tonight. Yes, indeed. This is true. This is true. There is no cliffhanger tonight. Because this is the finale. This is the final episode of The Hunger Games. I don't know how y'all are feeling about that. I am... I'm not feeling great about it. I don't love this. <laughs> hey, Proteus Spade, I have been on for about six seconds. So, you are you are all set. You're all good, Proteus Spade. Everybody? Yeah, Missy puts it, Missy puts it well. Wow, I can't believe it's ending today. Yeah, um, everybody, this is it. We have been on this journey now for quite a while. Um, you know, we don't really talk about this in terms of seasons here on this show, Flying Sidecar. Um, I'll use seasons sometimes to describe some of my other shows, uh, like Side Cannons on Wednesday, which I'm sure we'll be talking about in just a moment, because I just launched a huge project yesterday. I don't really talk about seasons on this show, but um, in uh, in the podcast hosting section, uh, I can select what season certain things are from. And if we're talking about, I, I sort of organize it by uh, the individual books. So there were seven seasons of Harry Potter. There were three season, uh, five seasons, excuse me, of Percy Jackson. Three of um, of uh, Hunger Games here, which means this is the this is the finale of season. 15. Isn't that nuts? The finale of season 15 of Flying Sidecar. Um, <laughs> seasons going, dating back to before it was called Flying Sidecar, back when it was just sidecar stories because I wasn't doing other things yet. Uh, now I have got all sorts of stuff going on. I am so stoked. Uh, I'm a fish, I've officially wrapped up my, um, my remote work, my sort of third job remote work. Um, that is officially done, which means that I am gearing up, uh, certainly by, uh, I, I'm kind of thinking like maybe book fair is the perfect time to start back in on, um, uh, to start back in on vintage sidecar when we start reading, uh, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. I think that sounds fantastic to me. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking about that. Uh, we are, you know, we've played some games, of course, over time. Pretty Spade says vintage is my favorite. I know about it. Uh, Grimbeard says, hello all. I'm not sure what I've stumbled onto here, but I think I'm hyped. Hey, Grimbeard, I hope that you are. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. Uh, I'm a voice actor and I really love books and stories. I love sharing them with y'all. Uh, I love telling stories to you, but I also love t telling stories with you. And so, um, Grimbeard Adventures, uh, what you've stumbled onto here is, this is reading streams. Uh, I have been doing this for about five years now, I think. Ooh, boy. Oh, that's a hell of a number, isn't it? Um, no, we're like, we're definitely pushing four, but am I, am I close to five? I'm close to five. I'm not quite there, but I'm close to it. Uh, if you want to know where you can find 
all the other stuff that I've done. It is spread far and wide, but you can use the playlists command at any time, and that will bring up a specific link tree dedicated to the playlists for all the various things that I've done here. Everything that's uploaded, um, it should be on there. Yeah, uh, Maria, I don't think it's a full five years, but I'm definitely closing in on it. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's true, Van. Yeah, I've been doing this for 15 seasons. I read through the entirety of uh, Harry Potter, I read through the entirety of the uh, core series, the first original series of the Percy Jackson books, and now, Grimbeard, you have caught us for a weird episode, I will say that, because this is the finale, this is the final episode, after we've been doing this for, let's see, it's nine episodes per book, because I do three episodes per, I do, I do three chapters per episode, we're going to be doing the final three tonight, plus the epilogue, um, and so yeah, I think this is going to be our 20... Is that right? Is that right? 27th stream of this? I guess probably technically 28th, because I think we divided them up a little bit differently because I had a, a an internet drop at one point. Um, but yeah, I think this is going to be our 27th, 27th, 28th stream of the Hunger Games. Uh, and then, of course, we've done so, so many before that. <laughs> Maria says... Boy, close to it. I started listening to you when I was driving my ex to Philly, and that was three and a half years ago. Uh, it was half, uh, uh, and you were halfway through Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. That math makes sense to me. Uh, good folks, we're going to go over a bit of review, <laughs> which, frankly, if you are here, it would be nuts for you to need some review, but I'm going to do it anyway, just so we're refreshed. But... Um, well, Sander, okay, so that's a good, that's a good point, Sander, and it's something I wanted to talk to you all about. Um, our next read-through, I'm not going to say next week, because that's the thing I want to talk to you about, but our next read-through, uh, for Vintage Sidecar, that is our, uh, a, a, uh, <laughs> where we shed some light on classic lit, that's going to be Sherlock Holmes. But our next flying sidecar read-through here, our next flying sidecar read-through is going to be The Lord of the Rings. I have not been ready for it until now, but now I'm ready. Uh, we took the vote in Discord, and by a narrow margin, Lord of the Rings came out in front. And so that is going to be our next read-through. But the question is, when do we start? Sander is saying potentially next week. But my question to you all is, should we wait? Should we wait just a little bit in favor of potentially doing some watch parties for this? Now, last time we did some watch parties. Uh, I believe we did it for... Um, uh, the Hunger Games. Nope. What am I saying? Um, <laughs> uh, we did it for Deathly Hallows, I believe. And what, I, what I'm thinking we might want to do is do some watch parties for the Hunger Games movies. Because if we spend a few weeks doing that, that will take us right up to book fair, which means that uh, in the at the uh, during book fair, which is going to be, I have officially confirmed it, that is going to be the last week of uh, that's going to be the last week of September. I know, I know it was the same essentially last year, but we're doing it once again this week. The last week of September is going to be Book Fair. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is my big once-a-year uh, stream stravaganza, I suppose. Oh boy, that's that's just terrible enough to work. Stream stravaganza is <laughs> just <laughs> terrible enough to work. Um, it will give me a little bit of extra prep time, but uh, I think I think some watch parties would be fun. I know. Uh, people who love Percy Jackson, um, remember that we did not do a watch party for those because people who love Percy Jackson have often said they're not a big fan of the movies. And so we intentionally did not do a watch party for that. But 
I think the Hunger Games movies did a pretty darn good job. Um, I know last time we did it where like everyone had to have their own version, had to have their own version. Um, I think this time, instead of doing it on Twitch, we'll just do it directly in Discord because, I mean, that's how that's how buds watch stuff together over long distances anyway, and that way not everyone has to have their own version, and uh, we can all join the chat. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the chat open to everyone, so <laughs> uh, you you should be able to mute other people. It's gonna take me a, a little bit to uh, uh, to set up, I suppose, but yeah, the movies are good. Yeah, y'all are my buds. Absolutely, y'all are my buds. I and I want to be, you know, I I'm aware of like the parasocial relationship thing that pops up online, but I I mean, I definitely want to say, you know, y'all <laughs> I think we are we're good internet friends. I think that's a good thing to have. I think, you know, some of these extended support systems can be helpful as well. Um Okay, so uh, yeah, we'll have to talk about it. Sander Sander's given me some some flags here, so it's possible we will handle them in different ways, but uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure about how, but I would say I think it would be good for us to try some, uh, to do some watch parties. I think that'd be a good old time. So uh, we're going to talk about how that's going to work. Uh, but I would say our next few Thursdays are probably going to be occupied with that. <laughs> Jade says, old Sam, old buddy, old pal. Indeed. You're my buds. <laughs> Welcome to Sidecar Stars. This is where my buddy Sam reads to us. Indeed. And this is what I'm talking about. This is what the, hey, that old hashtag. Y'all know I'm not a huge fan of hashtags, but uh, that hashtag read aloud crowd. Get on it. Get on it. We're all we're all buds and we're all going to read to each other. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like, uh, it's going to be like how we used to entertain ourselves off in the olden days. I think it's a good way to bond and it's a good way to enjoy stories together. I like it. All right. I just enjoy it. I don't want to hear about it. Okay, I got to pop open my um, my PDF here. We're going to talk about some of these other announcements later on. I don't want to sort of like launch into it right away because uh, you know I want I want I want to give people a chance to be in here first. But before we get started, y'all know what we got to do, right? We do it every week. What's it time for? Y'all know what it's time for? It's time for a spot of review. Just a touch of review. Make sure my mic settings are right. Whoop. Yep, there we go. We're good. A touch of review. Katniss Everdeen. The girl on fire. Last week's chapters were rough. Uh, for our long review, Katniss, after having been uh, a, a champion, an unintentional leader of a rebellion, or at least the face of it, now Katniss finds herself on the threshold of her foe, right outside the gates of President Snow's house in the capital. It has been a long road to get here, a long road full of loss. And over last week's chapters, we sort of reflected on some of that loss. We have lost, just here in these chapters, Boggs. We have lost Finnick. PETA has only been half here for quite some time now. But as we arrive here in the capital, we are left with only Cressida and one of the cameramen. We are left with Katniss and Gale and PETA. The rebellion has pushed 
further and further. They have taken over all of the districts, and they are finally here in the capital, ready to accomplish their final goal. The main goal was to take control of the districts and the capital, but the final goal is to end President Snow. And we're here. We're on the threshold. Katniss has been separated from some of her companions. She doesn't know what's going to happen to them. All she knows is that she has a mission. She hopes that Peta went back. She watched as Gale was captured and she failed to shoot him as she had agreed to do, as was their silent promise to each other that they would not allow each other to be captured. She arrives here on the steps. It is full of children, refugees from here in the capital, who have been gathered up uh, with the promise that they will have protection inside uh, the, the capital building. But they're gathered up here outside on the steps. And as Katniss approaches, suddenly a hovercraft flies over and drops silver parachutes, dozens of them. These are easily recognizable from the Hunger Games. They often carry gifts or food. They are universally recognized as good things. But as these children rush to grab for them, they explode. The next wave approaches, and this next wave are rebel medics. They rush forward as well and start tending to these wounded um, and that's when the rest of the parachutes goes off. And the last thing Katniss sees before these next bigger wave of parachutes explodes is that one of the medics caught in the fire is her sister. That is where we are. I thank you all very much for joining me for this adventure. As I mentioned, uh, we don't usually talk about it in terms of seasons, but if we're talking about it just in terms of books just on this show, not counting Murder on the Orient Express or The Hobbit or Frankenstein or any of the short stories that we've read, if we're talking just on the Thursday show, if we're talking about just Flying Sidecar, this is the last episode of Season 15. I'm excited. I want to be clear, uh, there are some content warnings that need to be given before we launch in here. I'm going to give those after the music because I think it's important that uh, people who are skipping forward in this, that they hear it then. Everyone, thank you so very much for being with me. And I hope you enjoy this final episode. A content warning here, there is going to be some pretty graphic descriptions of harm, and there are going to be some mentions and discussion of self-harm. Chapter 25. Real 
or not real. I am on fire. The balls of flame that erupted from the parachutes shot over the barricades, through the snowy air, and landed in the crowd. I was just turning away when one caught me, ran its tongue up the back of my body and transformed me into something new, a creature as unquenchable as the sun. A fire mutt knows only a single sensation. Agony. No sight, no sound, no feeling except for the unrelenting burning of flesh. Perhaps there are periods of unconsciousness, but what can it matter if I can't find refuge in them? I am Sinna's bird, ignited, flying frantically to escape something inescapable. The feathers of flame that grow from my body, beating my wings only fans the blaze. I consume myself, but to no end. Finally, my wings begin to falter. I lose height, and gravity pulls me into a foamy sea the color of Phoenix's eyes. I float on my back, which continues to burn beneath the water, but the agony quiets the pain. When I am adrift and unable to navigate, that's when they come. The dead. The ones I loved fly as birds in the open sky above me, soaring, weaving, calling to me to join them. I want so badly to follow them, but the seawater saturates my wings, making it impossible to lift them. The ones I hated have taken to the water, horrible, scaled things that tear my salty flesh with needle teeth, biting again and again, dragging me beneath the surface. The small white bird, tinged in pink, dives down buries her claws in my chest and tries to keep me afloat. No, Katniss, you can't go. But the ones I hated are winning. And if she clings to me, she'll be lost as well. Prim, let go. And finally she does. Deep in the water, I'm deserted by all. There's only the sound of my breathing, the enormous effort it takes to draw the water in, to push it out of my lungs. I want to stop, to try to hold my breath, but the sea forces its way in and out against my will. Let me die. Let me follow the others. I beg whatever holds me there. There's no response. Trapped for days, years, centuries, maybe. Dead but not allowed to die. Alive, but as good as dead. So alone that anyone, anything, no matter how loathsome, would be welcome. But when I finally have a visitor, it's sweet. Morphling, coursing through my veins, easing the pain, lightening my body so that it rises back toward the air and rests again on the foam. Foam. I really am floating on foam. I can feel it beneath the tips of my fingers, cradling parts of my naked body. There's much pain, but there's also something like reality. The sandpaper of my throat, the smell of burn medicine from the first arena, the sound of my mother's voice. These things frighten me, and I try to return to the deep that makes sense of them, but there's no going back. Gradually, I'm forced to accept who I am. A badly burned girl with no wings, with no fire, and no sister. <laughs>
In the dazzling white Capitol Hospital, the doctors worked their magic on me. Draping my rawness in new sheets of skin, coaxing the cells into thinking they are my own. Manipulating my body parts, bending and stretching the limbs to assure a good fit. I hear over and over again how lucky I am. My eyes were spared. Most of my face was spared. My lungs are responding to treatment. I will be as good as new. When my tender skin has toughened enough to withstand the pressure of sheets, more visitors arrive. The morphling opens the door to the dead and alive alike. Hamish, yellow and unsmiling. Cinna, stitching a new wedding dress. Delhi, prattling on about the niceness of people. My father sings all four stanzas of The Hanging Tree and reminds me that my mother, who sleeps in a chair between shifts, isn't to know about it. One day I awake to expectations and know that I will not be allowed to live in my dreamland. I must take food by mouth, move my own muscles, make my way to the bathroom. A brief appearance by President Coyne clinches it. Don't worry, she says. I've saved him for you. The doctor's puzzlement grows over why I'm unable to speak. Many tests are done, and while there's damage to my vocal cords, it doesn't account for it. Finally, Dr. Aurelius, head doctor, comes up with the theory that I've become a mental, rather than physical, AVOX. That my silence has been brought on by emotional trauma. Although he's presented with a hundred proposed remedies, he tells them to leave me alone. So I don't ask about anyone or anything. But people bring me a steady stream of information. On the war... The capital fell the day the parachutes went off. President Coyne leads Pan Am now, and troops have been sent out to put down the small remaining pockets of capital resistance. On President Snow, he's being held prisoner, awaiting trial and most certain execution. On my assassination team, Cressida and Pollux have been sent out into the districts to cover the wreckage of the war. Gale, who took two bullets in an escape attempt, is mopping up peacekeepers in two, Peta is still in the burn unit. He made it to the city circle after all. On my family? My mother buries her grief in her work. Having no work, grief buries me. All that keeps me going is Coin's promise, that I can kill Snow. And when that's done, nothing will be left. Eventually, I'm released from the hospital and given a room in the President's mansion to share with my mother. She's almost never there, taking her meals and sleeping at work. It falls to Hamish to check on me, make sure I'm eating and using my medicines. It's not an easy job. I take to my old habits from District 13, wandering unauthorized through the mansion, into bedrooms and offices, ballrooms and baths, seeking strange little hiding places. A closet of furs, a cabinet in the library, a long-forgotten bathtub in a room of discarded furniture. My places are dim and quiet and impossible to find. I curl up, make myself smaller, try to disappear entirely. Wrapped in silence, I slide my bracelet that reads, Mentally Disoriented, around and around my wrist. My name is Katniss Everdeen. I am 17 years old. 
My home is District 12. There is no District 12. I am the Mockingjay. I brought down the Capitol. President Snow hates me. He killed my sister. Now I will kill him, and then the Hunger Games will be over. Periodically, I find myself back in my room, unsure whether I was driven by a need for morphling or if Hamish ferreted me out. I eat the food, take the medicine, and am required to bathe. It's not the water I mind, but the mirror that reflects my naked fire-mutt body. The skin grafts still retain a newborn baby pinkness. The skin, deemed damaged but salvageable, looks red, hot, and melted in places. Patches of my former self gleam white and pale. I'm like a bizarre patchwork quilt of skin. Parts of my hair were singed off completely. The rest has been chopped off at odd lengths. Katniss Everdeen, the girl who was on fire. I wouldn't much care, except the sight of my body brings back the memory of the pain. And why I was in pain. And what happened just before the pain started. And how I watched my little sister become a human torch. Closing my eyes doesn't help. Fire burns brighter in the darkness. Dr. Aurelius shows up sometimes. I like him because he doesn't say stupid things like how I'm totally safe, or that he knows I can't see it but I'll be happy again one day, or even that things will be better in Pan Am now. He just asks if I feel like talking, and when I don't answer, he falls asleep in his chair. In fact, I think his visits are largely motivated by his need for a nap. The arrangement works for both of us. The time draws near, although I couldn't give you exact hours and minutes. President Snow has been tried and found guilty, sentenced to execution. Hamish tells me, I hear talk of it as I drift past the guards in the hallways. My Mockingjay suit arrives in my room. Also my bow, looking no worse for wear, but no sheath of arrows. Either because they were damaged, or more likely because I shouldn't have weapons. I vaguely wonder if I should be preparing for the event in some way. But nothing comes to mind. Late one afternoon, after a long period in a cushioned window seat behind a painted screen, I emerge and turn left instead of right. I find myself in a strange part of the mansion, and immediately lose my bearings. Unlike the area where I'm quartered, there seems to be no one around to ask. I like it, though. I wish I'd found it sooner. It's so quiet, with the thick carpets and heavy tapestries soaking up the sound. Softly lit, muted colors, peaceful. Until I smell the roses. I dive behind some curtains, shaking too hard to run while I await the mutts. Finally, I realize there are no mutts coming. So what do I smell? Real roses? Could it be that I'm near the garden, where the evil things grow? As I creep down the hall, the odor becomes overpowering. Perhaps not as strong as the actual mutts, but purer, because it's not competing with sewage and explosives. I turn a corner and find myself staring at two surprised guards. Not peacekeepers, of course. There are no more peacekeepers. But not the trim, gray-uniformed soldiers of thirteen, either. These two, a man and a woman, wear the tattered, thrown-together clothes of actual rebels. Still bandaged and gaunt, they are now keeping watch over the doorway to the roses. 
when I move to enter, their guns form an X in front of me. You can't go in, miss, says the man. Soldier, the woman corrects him. You can't go in, Soldier Everdeen. President told us. I just stand there, patiently waiting for them to lower their guns. For them to understand, without my telling them, that behind those doors is something I need. Just a rose. A single bloom. To place in Snow's lapel before I shoot him. My presence seems to worry the guards. They're discussing calling Hamish when a woman speaks up behind me. Let her go in! I, I know the voice, but I can't immediately place it. Not seem, not thirteen, definitely not capital. I turn my head and find myself face to face with Paler, the commander from eight. She looks even more beat up than she did at the hospital, but who doesn't? On my authority, says Paler. She's got a right to anything behind that door. These are her soldiers, not coins. They drop their weapons without question and let me pass. At the end of a short hallway, I push apart the glass doors and step inside. By now, the smell is so strong that it begins to flatten out, as if there's no more that my nose can absorb. The damp, mild air feels good on my hot skin, and the roses are glorious. Row after row of sumptuous blooms, in lush pink, sunset orange, even pale blue, I wander through the aisles of carefully pruned plants, looking but not touching, because I have learned the hard way how deadly these beauties can be. I know when I find it, crowning the top of a slender bush. A magnificent white bud just beginning to open. I pull my left sleeve over my hand so that my skin won't actually have to touch it. Take up a pair of pruning shears and have just positioned them on the stem when he speaks. That's a nice one. My hand jerks. The shears snap shut, severing the stem. The colors are lovely, of course, but nothing says perfection like white. I still can't see him, but his voice rises from an adjacent bed of red roses. Delicately pinching the stem of the bud through the fabric of my sleeve, I move slowly around the corner and find him sitting on a stool against the wall. He's well-groomed, and as finely dressed as ever, but weighed down with manacles, ankle shackles, tracking devices. In the bright light, his skin's a pale, sickly green. He holds a white handkerchief spotted with fresh blood. Even in his deteriorated state, his snake eyes shine bright and cold. I was hoping that you'd find your way to my quarters. His quarters... I have trespassed into his home, the way he slithered into mine last year, hissing threats with his bloody, rosy breath. This greenhouse is one of his rooms, perhaps his favorite. Perhaps in better times he tended the plants himself. But now it's part of his prison. That's why the guards halted me. And that's why Paler let me in. I'd supposed he would have been secured in the deepest dungeon that the capital had to offer, not cradled in the lap of luxury. Yet coin left him here. To set a precedent, I guess. 
so that if in the future she ever fell from grace, it would be understood that presidents, even the most despicable, get special treatment. Who knows, after all, when her own power might fade. There are so many things that we should discuss, but I have a feeling that your visit will be brief. So, first things first. <coughs> he begins to cough, and when he removes the handkerchief from his mouth, it's redder. I wanted to, wanted to tell you how very sorry I am about your sister. Even in my deadened, drugged condition, this sends a stab of pain through me, reminding me that there are no limits to his cruelty and how he will go to his grave trying to destroy me. So wasteful. So unnecessary. Anyone could see that the game was over by that point. In fact, I was just about to issue an official surrender when they released those parachutes. His eyes are glued on me, unblinking so as not to miss a second of my reaction. But what he's said makes no sense. When they released the parachutes? Well, you really didn't think I gave the order, did you? Forget the obvious fact that if I'd had a working hovercraft <laughs> at my disposal, I'd have been using it to, to make my escape. But that aside, what purpose could it have served? We both know I'm not above killing children, but I'm not wasteful. I take life for very specific reasons, and there was no reason for me to destroy a pen full of capital children. None at all. I wonder if the next fit of coughing is staged so that I can have time to absorb his words. He's lying. Of course he's lying, but there is something struggling to free itself from the lie as well. <coughs> However, I must concede that it was a, <clears throat> a masterful move on Coin's part. The idea that I was bombing our own helpless children instantly snapped whatever frail allegiance my people still felt to me. There was no real resistance after that. Did you know it aired live? You can see Plutarch's hand there. And in the parachutes. Well, it's that sort of thinking that you look for in a head <coughs> game maker, isn't it? <coughs> Snow dabs the corners of his mouth. I'm sure he wasn't gunning for your sister, but... These things happen. I'm not with Snow now. I'm in Special Weaponry, back in 13, with Gale and Beatty, looking at the designs based on Gale's traps that played on human sympathies. The first bomb killed the victims. The second, the rescuers. Remembering Gale's words... Beatty and I have been following the same rule book that President Snow used when he hijacked Peter. My failure, says Snow, was being so slow to grasp Coin's plan. 
to let the capital and districts destroy one another, and then step in and take power with 13 barely scratched. And make no mistake, she was intending to take my place right from the beginning. I shouldn't be surprised. After all, it was 13 that started the rebellion that led to the Dark Days, and then abandoned the rest of the districts when the tide turned against it. But I wasn't watching, Coin. I was watching you, Mockingjay. And you were watching me. I'm afraid. We've both been played for fools. I refuse for this to be true. Some things even I can't survive. I utter my first words since my sister's death. I don't believe you. Snow shakes his head in mock disappointment. Oh, my dear Miss Everdeen. I thought we'd agreed <coughs> not to lie to each other. Everyone, thank you very much for joining me for our first chapter of our last episode here. We've got two more chapters plus an epilogue to go yet tonight. With that, there are a few things I want to say. Folks, uh, Toady Moon Toady and Grimbeard Adventurers, uh, welcome to... <laughs> Welcome to the Punk Ruffians. It's good to have you here. I hope you're having a good time. I know this is an odd place to join. Once again, anyone who has jumped in and, uh, and wondered, like, hey... Hold on a second. How do I get caught up here? You can use the playlists command at any time that will bring up a specially dedicated link tree. It looks a lot like the other link tree, I know, but it's linktree slash SCS playlists. And that is the one that will have all the links to all the various places that uh, that I need to <laughs> I need to upload things. So you can get caught up there. Sander says, I gotta wake up in four to five hours, so I gotta go. Sander, I hope you have a good one. Um, we shall chat later over in the admin channel about whatever uh, whatever concerns that you had. They are probably good ones. They usually are. Um, and uh, I hope you have a good night. Folks, while I've got you here, I want to make a quick announcement. Yesterday, I launched maybe one of the biggest projects that I have ever launched. Uh, one of the biggest sort of single established projects. Um, I would say it's sort of right up there with like launching a new stream or something. It was something that I have been waiting for the right moment. I've been waiting for the right moment for this for about two years. It's, a, it's an idea that I had back in the early days. And now I've decided, you know what, I'm not going to wait for the right moment. I'm going to make this moment right. And so I have done so. As of yesterday, we have officially had the soft opening of the Realms of Recetus Discord server. It is an RP and adventure server. Uh, if you want to know more about that, go ahead and just use the command ROR for Realms of Recetus. ROR, the ROR command. That will give you a little bit of insight. Um, I will say that I am, I am intending to... Um, potentially open up this inv invitation a little bit wider in the future, but maybe not. 
What I will say is uh, you can find the link to get into that server from the main Sidecar Stories server, which you can find at that link there, linktree slash Sidecar Stories. Um, it is, as I mentioned, an RP and adventure server. Um, there's going to be an RP element to it. There are kind of three big ways to explore it. But if you like uh, the show Arcane, uh, then you are going to love Reseda's Towers, the magical metropolis that we've got there. If you like Attack on Titan uh, or Weird West, I think you're really going to uh, love certain things about the frontier surrounding that magical metropolis and if you like treasure planet or atlantis uh, or even like classic DD adventures um treasure planet especially is sort of where our soft opening takes us because we are currently aboard an airship that is heading straight south down storm alley if you want to go ahead and create your characters if you want to join us and um RP with other members of the server. Uh, you can explore because I've hidden secrets in uh, in the form of commands and uh, character cards and all that all over the place in there, and I'm just going to be adding more all the time. And then third and finally, we're going to be questing. Uh, and questing is I'm going to be leading y'all on adventures directly. On Wednesdays, we have got our you know our campaign where y'all can sort of join in and collectively control a character. Um, we've been having a ton of fun with that, but I wanted a way for y'all to more immersively jump into the realms of Ursidas. We have been working on this world together for three plus years at this point, and it's one of the greatest things that we've ever done together here, and I'm so excited for it. We've had a full year-long campaign uh, at Chat Plays Dungeon World. Um, that was the Reseda's Arena campaign. We are now uh, in the second scroll of our second major campaign, and I would love for this world to be unified. I want y'all to be able to jump in and have adventures directly inside that server. Um, and the things that happen in that server are going to have an impact on the world that continues in the sessions that we play on Wednesdays. And the things that we do on Wednesdays are going to bounce back in and have an impact on the world. We are currently, um, uh, we're currently adventuring in a campaign called Night School at Vesperal Academy. It is a secret school for young Duskin. Duskin being vampires and ghosts and Lycan, we're adventuring there right now, and once the full server opens up for Book Fair, once again, Book Fair, last week of September, last long week of September, last full week of September, once we open up the full server during Book Fair, um, y'all are going to be able to be students at Vesperal Academy. I want our PCs to be able to meet you if, that, if it comes to it. Uh, <laughs> I think that would be awesome. Uh, and of course... I will have them be present and active in the servers as well. Um, I'm super excited for it right now. Uh, for the soft opening, we are limiting it to a little test ground. Uh, that is the Pine Pelican. It is an airship. It is the first of its kind, captained by an eccentric uh, uh, businessman. Um, and right now, if y'all are wondering what's happening right at this moment over in that server. Well, right now, um, Quartermaster Jaku has called a <laughs> an all-hands meeting for, at least for the new recruits, and uh, she is currently kind of excoriating everyone who <laughs> doesn't seem to be where they're supposed to be. Um, so, if y'all want to meet more people, because y'all have met, like, I don't know, maybe 10% maybe of the people that I've currently already got loaded into the server, and I'm going to be adding more all the time. I've got a big bank of a bunch of art that I put together for characters and stuff. Y'all, it's super exciting, okay? I'm super excited. It's going to be a huge project. Uh, it's something that I am really proud of. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time, and I think we're going to have an absolute blast. Uh, I know we've got some people over there already. I think um, I think Gems is the only person who I, there's an approval process. Basically, you'll build a little character. We'll get approved, um, and uh, then you can jump into the server. But uh, we've got Hen. We have got... Um, 
let's see. Uh, we've got Mirden, we've got Luis. Um, Boar, I believe, is Monkey, and then we've got Gems. And uh, Gems still needs to be approved, but uh, those, are the, those are the ones that I've got in there sort of like uh, uh, already. We've got more of them, more of the uh, the the application cards out. Um, those are going to be coming in soon, I hope. And then, uh, yeah, we'll just get more and more people approved. We'll get more and more people up onto that airship, and we're going to go on some adventures. There are secrets. Ooh, there are secrets buried all over in there. There are catastrophic events that you can find, but there are also useful items that you can track down and characters to meet and quests to go on. Um, it's going to be a ton of fun. <laughs> It's gonna be so much fun, um, and uh, like I said, if you if you enjoyed Treasure Planet, which I would say is maybe one of the most underrated uh, animated movies that there is, well, I think you're going to enjoy this quite a bit. That's it, folks. The Realms of Recetus. Go ahead and use the ROR command at any time if you want to uh, bring up that prompt again, but everyone, thank you very much for joining me. Once again, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. Let's talk a spot of review. Chatterbreak question. Let's see what y'all have been talking about. I'm just going to launch a question at you. We're going to review. And we're going to launch right into our next chapter. Um, that way y'all can discuss this at your own pace. Let me see. Proteus Spade says, I wasn't certain, but was concerned I might be able to use this quote tonight. Don't trust in revolution. Don't put your trust in revolutions. They always come around again. That's why they're called revolutions. People die and nothing changes. Uh, that is a quote from Terry Pratchett uh, written in Nightwatch. And that's an interesting one. That's an interesting quote. Um, uh, <laughs> hey, yeah, no, there, there's never like a perfect moment. So yeah, uh, Luis says, I couldn't resist and jumped into the ballroom. Excellent. The ballroom, uh, it was, there was an accident there. And if y'all hunt around, I have got a secret prompt hidden in that channel um, that will tell you about the history of that accident. Um, that is one of the many secrets that you can find aboard the Pine Pelican. Um, and uh, in addition to that, let's see. Let's see. What else do we want to talk about here? Um, Van says, Sam, your fake coughing is on point. You could have used those skills in middle school. I should have. I should have. I was I was pretty a pretty attentive student in middle school. Um, let's see. Uh, Van said, okay, so Van and Yuyu are talking about how this end feels a little bit rushed, a little bit anticlimactic. I think that is a fair criticism to level. Do you agree or not, and why? There's our chatterbreak question. Does this feel a little bit rushed, or does it feel like a proper amount of sort of abruptness? Does it feel thematically appropriate, or does it feel like maybe we, you know, did we, did we sort of get past the content early, and then we're sort of reeling for how it all ends? Because I could certainly see it being both ways. I mean, how does a revolution end? Once it's over, is it a party? Is it, you know, does it does it feel like triumph? Do you get to ride a huge wave of, of victory? Or does it feel snipped short just like this? There's our chatterbreak question. A spot of review. It's gonna be super short. Katniss is once again uh, jarred by the loss of her sister. It sounds like Gale is off fighting in District 2. Peta is still recovering. Katniss's mother is working a lot as a healer. Katniss doesn't speak. Instead, she spends her days recovering and walking around this mansion where she didn't imagine she would find him, but 
Nevertheless, when she wanders into a part of this mansion she's never been in before, she finds President Snow. He's in manacles and shackles and trackers, but he's here in his mansion in a, in a greenhouse full of roses. When Katniss meets him, he says that this thing with the parachutes, the silver parachute bombs, it wasn't his idea, and it wasn't done in his orders. He didn't do this. He says it was President Coyne in an effort to make it look like it was him and to eliminate whatever, whatever last bits of resistance might have existed, whatever last bits of loyalty people might have had for President Snow. Katniss says, I don't believe you. And President Snow simply says, I thought we agreed not to lie to each other. Chapter 26 Out in the hall I find Paler standing in exactly the same spot. Did you find what you were looking for? I hold up the white bud in answer and then stumble past her. I must have made it back to my room because the next thing I know I'm filling a glass with water from the bathroom faucet and sticking the rose in it. I sink to my knees on the cold tile and squint at the flower as the whiteness seems hard to focus on in the stark fluorescent light. My finger catches the inside of my bracelet, twisting it like a tourniquet, hurting my wrist. I'm hoping that the pain will help me hang on to reality the way that it did for Peta. I must hang on. I must know the truth about what has happened. There are two possibilities, although the details associated with them may vary. First, as I've believed that the Capitol sent in that hovercraft, dropped the parachutes, and sacrificed its children's lives, knowing that the recently arrived rebels would go to their aid. There's evidence to support this. The capital's seal on the hovercraft, the lack of any attempt to blow the enemy out of the sky, and their long history of using children as pawns in their battle against the district. Then there's Snow's account. That a capital hovercraft, manned by rebels, bombed the children to bring a speedy end to the war. But if this was the case, why didn't the capital fire on the enemy? Did the element of surprise throw them? Had they no defenses left? Children are precious to thirteen, or so it's always seemed. Well, not me, maybe. Once I had outlived my usefulness, I was expendable. Although I think it's been a long time since I've been considered a child in this war. And why would they do it knowing that their own medics would likely respond and be taken out by the second blast? They wouldn't. They couldn't. Snow's lying, manipulating me as he always has, hoping to turn me against the rebels and possibly destroy them. Yes, of course. Then what's nagging at me? 
those double exploding bombs for one. It's not that the capital couldn't have had the same weapon, it's just that I'm sure the rebels did. Gale and Beatty's brainchild. Then there's the fact that Snow made no escape attempt when I know him to be a consummate survivor. He seems hard to believe that he didn't have a retreat somewhere, some bunker stocked with provisions where he could live out the remains of his snaky little life. And finally, there's his assessment of coin. What's irrefutable is that she's done exactly what he said. Let the capital and the districts run one another into the ground and then sauntered in to take power. Even if that was her plan, it doesn't mean she dropped those parachutes. Victory was already in her grasp. Everything was in her grasp. Except me. I recall Boggs's response when I admitted I didn't put much thought into Snow's successor. If your immediate answer isn't coin, then you're a threat. You're the face of the rebellion. You may have more influence than any other single person. Outwardly, the most you've ever done is tolerate her. Suddenly, I'm thinking of Prim, who was not yet fourteen, not yet old enough to be granted the title of soldier, but somehow working on the front lines. How did such a thing happen? That my sister would have wanted to be there, I have no doubt. That she would be more capable than many older than her? That's a given. But for all that, someone very high up would have had to approve putting a 13-year-old in combat. Did Coin do it? Hoping that losing Prim would push me completely over the edge? Or at least firmly on her side? I wouldn't have even had to witness it in person. Numerous cameras would be covering the city circle, capturing the moment forever. No, now I am going crazy, slipping into some state of paranoia. Too many people would have had to know of the mission. Word would get out. Or would it? Who would have to know besides Coin, Plutarch, and a small, loyal, or easily disposable crew? I badly need help working this out. Only everyone I trust is dead. Cinna, Boggs, Finnick, Prim... There's PETA, but he couldn't do any more than speculate, and who knows what state his mind is in anyway. And that leaves me only Gale. He's far away, but even if he were beside me, could I confide in him? What could I say? How could I phrase it without implying that it was his bomb that killed Prim? The impossibility of that idea, more than any, is why Snow must be lying. Ultimately, there's only one person to turn to who might know what happened and might still be on my side. To broach the subject at all will be a risk. But while I think Hamish might gamble with my life in the arena, I don't think he'd rat me out to coin. Whatever problems we may have with one another, we prefer resolving our differences one-on-one. -on -one. I scramble off the tiles, out the door, and across the hall to his room. When there's no response to my knock, I push inside. Oh. It's amazing how quickly he can defile a space. Half-eaten plates of food, shattered liquor bottles, and pieces of broken furniture from a drunken rampage scatter his quarters. He lies, unkempt and unwashed, in a tangle of sheets on the bed, passed out. Hamish, I say, shaking his leg. Of course that's insufficient. Better give it a few more tries before I dump the pitcher of water on his face. He comes to with a gasp, slashing blindly with his knife. Apparently, the end of Snow's reign didn't equal the end of his terror. Oh! 
he says. I can tell by his voice that he's still loaded. Hamish, I begin. Listen to that! The mocking Jay found her voice! <laughs> he laughs. Well, Plutarch is going to be happy! He takes a swig from a bottle. <laughs> Why am I soaking wet? I lamely drop the pitcher behind me into a pile of dirty clothes. I need your help, I say. Hamish belches, filling the air with the white liquor fumes. What's that, sweetheart? You got more boy trouble? I don't know why, but this hurts me in a way Hamish rarely can. It must show on my face, because even in his drunken state, he tries to take it back. Okay, alright, not funny. I'm already at the door. Not funny! Come back! By the thud of his body hitting the floor, I assume he tried to follow me. But there's no point. I zigzag through the mansion and disappear into a wardrobe full of silken things. I yank them from the hangers until I've got a pile and then I burrow into it. In the lining of my pocket, I find a stray morphling tablet and swallow it dry, heading off my rising hysteria. It's not enough to write things, though. I hear Hamish calling me in the distance, but he won't find me in this condition, especially not in this new spot. Swathed in silk, I feel like a caterpillar, in a cocoon awaiting metamorphosis. I always supposed that to be a peaceful condition. At first it is. But as I journey into night, I feel more and more trapped, suffocated by the slippery bindings, unable to emerge until I have transformed to something of beauty. I squirm, trying to shed my ruined body and unlock the secret to growing flawless wings. Despite my enormous effort, I remain a hideous creature, fired into my current form by the blast from the bombs. The encounter with snow opens the door to my old repertoire of nightmares. It's like being stung by tracker jackers again, a wave of horrifying images with a brief respite I confuse with waking, only to find another wave knocking me back. When the guards finally locate me, I'm sitting in the floor of the wardrobe, tangled in silk, screaming my head off. I fight them at first, until they convince me they're trying to help, peel away the choking garments and escort me back to my room. On the way, we pass a window and I see a gray, snowy dawn spreading across the capital. A very hungover Hamish waits with a handful of pills and a tray of food that neither of us has the stomach for. He makes a feeble attempt to get me to talk again, but seeing that it's pointless, sends me to a bath someone's drawn. The tub is deep, with three steps to the bottom. I ease down into the warm water and sit, with my neck in suds, hoping the medicines will kick in soon. My eyes focus on the rose that has spread its petals overnight, filling the steamy air with its strong perfume. I rise and reach for a towel to smother it, but when there's a tentative knock and the bathroom door opens, it reveals three familiar faces. They try to smile at me, but even Venia can't conceal her shock at my ravaged mutt body. Surprise! Octavia squeaks and then bursts into tears. I'm puzzling over their reappearance when I realize that this must be it. 
the day of the execution. They've come to prepare me for the cameras. Remake me to beauty base zero. No wonder Octavia is crying. It's an impossible task. They can barely touch my patchwork of skin for fear of hurting me, so I rinse and dry myself. I tell them I hardly notice the pain anymore, but Flavius still winces as he drapes a robe around me. In the bedroom, I find another surprise. Sitting upright in a chair, polished from her metallic gold wig to her patent leather high heels, gripping a clipboard. Remarkably unchanged, except for the vacant look in her eyes. Effie, I say. Hello, Katniss. She stands and kisses me on the cheek as if nothing has occurred since our last meeting, the night before the quarter quell. Well, it looks like we've got another big, 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 big day ahead of us, so why don't you start your prep and I'll just pop over and check on the arrangements. Okay, I say to her back. They say that Plutarch and Haymitch had a hard time keeping her alive, comments Venia under her breath. She was imprisoned after your escape, so that helped. It's quite a stretch. Effie Trinket, rebel. But I don't want Coin killing her, so I make a mental note to present her that way if asked. I guess it's good Plutarch kidnapped you three after all. We're the only prep team still alive, and all the stylists from the Court of Quell are dead, says Venia. She doesn't say who specifically killed them. I'm beginning to wonder if it matters. She gingerly takes one of my scarred hands and holds it out for inspection. Now, what do you think for the nails? Maybe red or a jet black? Flavius performs some beauty miracle on my hair, managing to even out the front while getting some of the balder spots on my back with longer locks for my hair. My face, since it was spared from the flames, presents no more than the usual challenges. Once I'm in Cinna's Mockingjay suit, the only scars visible are on my neck, forearms, and hands. Octavia secures my Mockingjay pin over my heart, and we step back to look in the mirror. <laughs> I can't believe how normal they've made me look on the outside, when inwardly I'm such a wasteland. There's a tap on the door, and Gale steps in. Can I have a minute? He asks. In the mirror, I watch my prep team. Unsure of where to go, they bump into one another a few times and then closet themselves in the bathroom. Gail comes up behind me and we examine each other's reflection. I'm searching for something to hang on to. Some sign of the girl and boy who met by chance in the woods five years ago and became inseparable. I'm wondering... What would have happened to them if the Hunger Games had not reaped the girl? If she would have fallen in love with the boy, married him even? And sometime in the future, when the brothers and sisters had been raised up, escaped with him into the woods and left twelve behind forever? Would they have been happy out in the wild? Or would the dark, twisted sadness between them have grown up? even without the capital's help. I brought you this. Gail holds up a sheath. When I take it, I notice it holds a single, ordinary arrow. It's supposed to be symbolic, 
you fire in the last shot of the war. What if I miss? I say. Does Coyne retrieve it and bring it back to me? Or just shoot snow through the head herself? You won't miss. Gail adjusts the sheath on my shoulder. We stand there, face to face, not meeting each other's eyes. You didn't come to see me in the hospital? He doesn't answer, so finally I just say it. Was it your bomb? I don't know. Neither does Beatty, he says. Does it matter? You're always going to be thinking about it. He waits for me to deny it. I want to deny it, but it's true. Even now I can see the flash that ignites her, feel the heat of the flames, and I will never be able to separate that moment from Gale. My silence is my answer. That was the one thing I had going for me. Taking care of your family. <laughs> Shoot straight. Okay. He touches my cheek and leaves. I want to call him back and tell him that I was wrong. That I'll figure out a way to make peace with this. To remember the circumstances under which he created the bomb. Take into account my own inexcusable crimes. Dig up the truth about who dropped the parachutes. Prove that it wasn't the rebels. Forgive him. But since I can't, I'll just have to deal with the pain. Effie comes in to usher me to some kind of meeting. I collect my bow and at the last minute remember the rose, glistening in its glass of water. When I open the door to the bathroom, I find my prep team sitting in a row on the edge of the tub, hunched and defeated. I remember I'm not the only one whose world has been stripped away. Come on, I tell them. We've got an audience waiting. I'm expecting a production meeting in which Plutarch instructs me where to stand and gives me my cue for shooting snow. Instead, I find myself sent into a room where six people sit around a table. Peta, Joanna, Beatty, Hamich, Annie, and Inobaria. They all wear the gray rebel uniforms from 13. No one looks particularly well. What's this? I say. We're not sure, Hamish answers. It appears to be a gathering of the remaining vectors. We're all that's left, I ask. The price of celebrity, says Beatty. We were targeted from both sides. The capital killed the victors they suspected of being rebels. The rebels killed those thought to be allied with the capital. Joanna scowls at Inabaria. So what's she doing here? She is protected under what we call the Mockingjay Deal, says Coyne as she enters behind me, wherein Katniss Everdeen agreed to support the rebels in exchange for captured victor's immunity. Katniss has upheld her side of the bargain, and so shall we. Inabaria smiles at Joanna. Don't look so smug, says Joanna. We'll kill you anyway. Sit down, please, Katniss, says Coyne, closing the door. I take a seat between Annie and Beatty, carefully placing Snow's rose on the table. As usual, Coyne gets right to the point. 
I've asked you here to settle a debate. Today, we will execute Snow. In the previous weeks, hundreds of his accomplices in the oppression of Panem have been tried and now await their own deaths. However, the suffering in the districts has been so extreme that these measures appear insufficient to the victims. In fact, many are calling for a complete annihilation of those who held capital citizenship. However, in the interest of maintaining a sustainable population, we cannot afford this. Through the water in the glass, I see a distorted image of one of Peter's hands. The burn marks. We are both fire mutts now. My eyes travel up to where the flames licked across his forehead, singeing away his brows, but just missing his eyes. Those same blue eyes that used to meet mine and then flit away at school, just as they do now. So, an alternative has been placed on the table. Since my colleagues and I can come to no consensus, it has been agreed we shall let the victors decide. A majority of four will approve the plan. No one may abstain from the vote. What has been proposed is that in lieu of eliminating the entire capital population, we shall have a final symbolic Hunger Games, using the children directly related to those who held the most power. All seven of us turn to her. What? says Joanna. We hold another Hunger Games using capital children, says Coin. Are you joking? asks Peter. No. I should also tell you that if we do hold the games, it will be known it was done with your approval, although the individual breakdown of your votes will be kept secret for your own safety, Coin tells us. Was this Plutarch's idea? asks Hamish. It was mine, says Coin. It seemed to balance the need for vengeance with the least loss of life. You may cast your votes. No, bursts out Peter. I vote no, of course. We can't have another Hunger Games. Why not? Joanna retorts. It seems fair to me. Snow even has a granddaughter. I vote yes. So do I, says Inabaria, almost indifferent. Let them have a taste of their own medicine. This is why we rebelled. Do you remember? Peter looks at the rest of us. Annie? I vote no with Peter, she says. So would Finnick, if he were here. But he isn't, because Snow's mutts killed him, Joanna reminds her. Uh, no, says Beatty. It would set a, a bad precedent. We have to stop viewing each other as enemies. At this point, unity is essential for our survival. No. We're down to Katniss and Hamish, says Coin. <laughs> Was it like this then? Seventy-five years ago or so? Did a group of people sit around and cast their votes on initiating the Hunger Games? Was there dissent? Did someone make a case for mercy that was beaten down by the calls for the deaths of the district's children? The scent of Snow's rose curls up into my nose, down into my throat, squeezing it tight with despair. All those people I loved, dead. And we are discussing the next Hunger Games in an attempt to avoid wasting life. Nothing has changed. Nothing will ever change now. I weigh my options carefully. 
think everything through. Keeping my eyes on the rose, I say, I vote yes for Prim. Hey, Mitch, it's up to you, says Coin. A furious Peter hammers Hamish with the atrocity he could become party to, but I can feel Hamish watching me. This is the moment, then, when we find out exactly just how alike we are, and how much he truly understands me. I'm with the Mockingjay, he says. Excellent. That carries the vote, says Coin. Now we really must take our places for the execution. As she passes me, I hold up the glass with the rose. Could you see that Snow's wearing this? Just over his heart? Coin smiles. Of course. And I'll make sure that he knows about the games. Thank you, I say. People sweep into the room, surround me. The last touch of powder, the instructions from Plutarch as I'm guided to the front doors of the mansion. The city circle runs over, spills people onto the side streets. The others take their places outside. Guards, officials, rebel leaders, victors. I hear the cheers that indicate Coin has appeared on the balcony. Then Effie taps my shoulder and I step out into the cold winter sunlight. I walk to my position, accompanied by the deafening roar of the crowd. As directed, I turn so that they can see me in profile and wait. When they march snow out the door, the audience goes insane. They secure his hands behind a post, which is unnecessary. He's not going anywhere. There's nowhere to go. This is not the roomy stage before the training center, but the narrow terrace in front of the president's mansion. No wonder no one bothered to have me practice. He's ten yards away. I feel the bow purring in my hand. Reach back and grasp the arrow. Position it, aim at the rose, but watch his face. He coughs and a bloody dribble runs down his chin. His tongue flicks over his puffy lips. I search his eyes for the slightest sign of anything. Fear? Remorse? Anger? But there's only the same look of amusement that ended our last conversation. As if he's speaking the words again. Oh, my dear Miss Everdeen, I thought we agreed not to lie to each other. He's right. We did. The point of my arrow shifts upward. I release the string. And President Coyne collapses over the side of the balcony and plunges to the ground. Dead. You heard that right. President Coin. 
<laughs> Proteus spade. <laughs> we need hey. Uh, Van, are you st are you still up in the mix right now? We need a we need a Van saves lives bon mall for the end of this one. <laughs> Gwen dog, Gwen dog, sounds like this one caught caught at least one of us by surprise. <laughs> this is one of those these last three chapters. I, I y'all may remember I mentioned um, early on in our read through here. These last three chapters, and we've only got one more chapter to go. We're doing it tonight. Uh, technically, one chapter and an epilogue. We're doing both of them tonight. I'm going to take a quick five-minute break, and then I'm going to be back, and we're going to read the rest of this book. This is the end. This is the end of The Hunger Games. <sighs> Jade. Jade. <laughs> All right, don't worry. Don't worry, Van. I see you're still in here, but uh, Jade took care of it for you. You were, you were a little slow on the draw. And Jade took care of it. <laughs> Jade, Jade snapped that one up. Hip fire. Okay, folks. Um, as I mentioned, as we got further and further into this book, um, this third book was the one I least remembered of any of them. And these last three chapters, I remember barely anything from my first read through of this. I want to say I was in middle school or high school. Don't remember precisely. Um, but uh, y'all... <laughs> This is one of the parts I, I remembered the least, and so I can certainly say, as I was doing my prep for this stream this week, there's some, uh, there's some stuff. <laughs> there's some stuff I did not remember at all, and took me quite a bit by surprise. Um, everyone, as I've mentioned, I'm going to take a quick five-minute break, and then we're going to be back, and I'm going to read the final chapter and epilogue of this book, making it the final chapter and epilogue of this series. Now, as I've mentioned to you all before as well, I intend to read Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Um, we're going to be reading the the hard prequel to this series, um, and uh, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at doing some watch parties. I'm looking at doing some watch parties. I think uh, in the lead up to uh, <laughs> to book fair this year, I would like to do some watch parties. These are pretty well regarded as pretty good movies, and so I think the next few Thursdays. Um, I'll be I'll be talking about those over in Discord. We are probably going to be holding them in Discord as well. Um, uh, I imagine uh, I'm gonna have to talk to my mods about some of the possibilities there because some of them are a bit more knowledgeable than me about some of these things and some of our technological capabilities. But you can expect those to be coming up uh, soon. I definitely want to do watch parties. Um, if you want to know about how you can find the Discord and other such places to interact with the stream uh, midweek, perhaps go ahead and visit Linktree slash Sidecar Stories. That is the link to follow especially to the Discord, and that is the link to share with folks. It's one of the best ways that you can help out the show. Of course, I appreciate my patrons so much. Y'all are part of the reason why I can continue to do this and launch new things like the Realms of Recetus RP and Adventure Server. Uh, once again, the ROR command will tell you a bit more about that. Uh, but folks, I'm super stoked. We've got some great things going on. I'm super looking forward to Book Fair. Book Fair is the once a year Sidecar Stories stream stream extravaganza. Extremaganza. Extremaganza? Extrava? Ah, there's nothing. It's nothing good. Um, <laughs> but it's just bad enough to work. Um, that is our that is our big yearly event. Uh, I talk about Patreon a bit more than usual, but we also do, like, tons and tons more streaming than usual. Like, what, seven times as many, seven or eight times as much streaming as a typical week? Yeah. 
Yeah, y'all, uh, we've got the Book Fair channel open in Discord right now. That is going to be the spot where if you would like to suggest things for uh, that final week of September, it's going to be the last week of September, that last full week of September, that is the that is the week of Book Fair. Uh, if you've got things you want to suggest over there, that is the same channel um, uh, over in Discord. I'm also going to be doing some votes once we close in on it, like maybe next week, I would say, because we're already kind of closing in on it. Um, I'm going to start doing votes for the things that y'all want to see during Book Fair. Um, I really appreciate y'all. Uh, I am going to be very soon opening up, uh, the streams from last year's book fair so you can see kind of what we're getting into. Uh, if you're wondering what 50 plus hours of streaming in one week looks like, well, <laughs> well, y'all, I'm stoked. A quick chatter break question. How does this end for Katniss? And frankly, as I've mentioned so far, it's tough to do a chatterbreak question so close to the end. And so I'll simply leave you with that. What happens next for Katniss? How does this end for Katniss Everdeen? Because I saw an excellent point in chat. The perspective on this book, this is her story, after all. She's part of a larger story, but The Hunger Games, the series, these three books are Katniss's story. How does this end for Katniss? I'll see y'all in five minutes. Gonna have a quick break, refill my water, etc., etc., And then I'll be back for the final chapter. If y'all got suggestions for book fair, put them over in Discord. They'll get lost here in Twitch chat. They disappear forever. Put them over in Discord. There's a whole channel dedicated to it. I'll see you in five, bye-bye. Here we go, my good folks. Are you prepared? Are you ready for what comes next? I'm not entirely certain that I am, once again. <laughs> As I believe I may have mentioned at the top of the stream, I am not entirely sure that I am prepared. But we plunge forward nonetheless because this is our last chapter of this book. We're gonna we're gonna zip through some chat really quickly, but then I think we gotta we gotta launch into this final chapter. I don't think we should wait any longer. Brody Spade says, uh, excuse me, Van first says, I think Katniss did the right thing, regardless of how it ends. She saw the same thing happening again and could stop it before it happens. That's something you can rest easy doing regardless of consequences. Brody Spade says, I have truly no idea. In another series, Gail would force her and Peter to morph dolphin <laughs> to save their mental recoveries. Oh boy. Brody <laughs> Spade. Brody Spates says, the only prediction I really have is that in the immediate aftermath, Katniss will try to do a speech explaining and let Snow die slowly and painfully of his own poisons, possibly on camera. <laughs> Van says, yep, stop coin from being the next Snow and let Snow rot. Tell the people why she did it and come what may with a clean conscience. Conscience. Um, Jade says, Snow isn't even worth an arrow. They just need to imprison him in one of the arenas and let him rot there. Um, ooh, imprison him in one of the arenas. That's an interesting thought. Okay. Um, let's see. And then finally, Big Mama says, Snow is pure villain, no question. But there's something respectful about his relationship with Katniss and the promise not to lie to each other. 
and then <laughs> Big Mama. Um, yeah, we've got a. I believe we've got a running Animorphs goof. As we can, we can trust when Proteus Spade is up in the mix. We can trust two things: great discussion and running Animorphs goofs. Um, but yeah, Big Mama, uh, he is he is Snowy's pure villain, and I, I think there's something. There's, there's a veneer of respect, right? It is done with the cover of respect, whereas at the same time, I think there's something, you know, deeply disrespectful about his, his, um, I don't know, his whole relationship to life, right? And to, to living beings. Um, he is, <laughs> there, there is, there is absolutely no respect, no true respect, um, for, for, for life or the, the suffering of other people. There is only that, uh, there's only that that sort of false respect, um, which I suppose one might say is civility, right? I think I think there's a there's a confusion sometimes between respect and civility. I think one can be deeply disrespectful while being quite civil. Those are some dangerous people to watch out for. Everyone, our review. I guess I would simply say, go listen to the rest of the series. Katniss has. Met with her old prep team. President Coyne has taken a vote um, because her own sort of cabinet cannot uh, come to a conclusion. She takes a vote among the remaining victors whether or not to hold one final symbolic Hunger Games using the children of people in power from the capital. Once again. Although there are some that don't surprise us at all, like Peta voting no, Annie voting no, uh, Anabaria voting yes, Joanna voting yes. The surprises come when Katniss votes yes, and with Beatty voting no, the final vote is Hamish, who says, I vote with the Mockingjay. The day of the execution comes, Katniss stands ten yards away from snow draws back her bow, and kills President Coin. Chapter 27 In the stunned reaction that follows, I'm aware of one sound. Snow's laughter. An awful, gurgling cackle accompanied by an eruption of foamy blood when the coughing begins. I see him bend forward, spewing out his life until the guards block him from my sight. As the gray uniforms begin to converge on me, I think of what my brief future as the assassin of Pan Am's new president holds. The interrogation, probable torture, certain public execution, having, yet again, to say my final goodbyes to the handful of people who still maintain a hold on my heart. The prospect of facing my mother, who will now be entirely alone in the world, decides it. Good night, I whisper to the bow in my hand and feel it go still. 
I raise my left arm and twist my neck down to rip the pill off of my sleeve. Instead, my teeth sink into flesh. I yank my head back in confusion to find myself looking into Peta's eyes. Only now they hold my gaze. Blood runs from the teeth marks on the hand he clamped over my nightlock. Let me go! I snarl at him, trying to wrest my arm from his grip. I can't, he says. As they pull me away from him, I feel the pocket ripped from my sleeve, see the deep violet pill fall to the ground, watch Sinna's last gift get crunched under a guard's boot. I transform into a wild animal, kicking, clawing, biting, doing whatever I can to free myself from this web of hands as the crowd pushes in. The guards lift me up above the fray where I continue to thrash as I'm conveyed over the crush of people. I start screaming for Gale. I can't find him in the throng, but he will know what I want. A good, clean shot to end it all. Only there's no arrow. No bullet. Is it possible he can't see me? No. Above us on the giant screens placed around the city circle, everyone can watch the whole thing being played out. He sees. He knows. But he doesn't follow through. Just as I didn't when he was captured. Sorry excuses for friends and hunters, both of us. I'm on my own. In the mansion, they handcuff and blindfold me. I'm half dragged, half carried down long passages, up and down elevators, and deposited onto a carpeted floor. The cuffs are removed, and a door slams closed behind me. When I push the blindfold up, I find I'm in my old room at the training center. The one where I lived during those last precious days before my first Hunger Games in the Quarter Quell. The bed's stripped to the mattress, the closet gapes open, showing the emptiness inside, but I would know this room anywhere. It's a struggle to get to my feet and peel off my Mockingjay suit. I'm badly bruised and might have a broken finger or two, but it's my skin that's paid most dearly for my struggle with the guards. The new pink stuff is shredded like tissue paper and blood seeps through the laboratory-grown cells. No medics show up, though. And as I'm too far gone to care, I crawl up onto the mattress, expecting to bleed to death. No such luck. By evening, the blood clots, leaving me stiff and sore and sticky, but alive. I limp into the shower and program on the gentlest cycle I can remember. Free of any soaps and hair products and squat under the warm spray, elbows on my knees, head in my hands. My name is Katniss Everdeen. Why am I not dead? I should be dead. It would be best for everyone if I were dead. When I step out onto the mat, the hot air bakes my damaged skin dry. There's nothing clean to put on, not even a towel to wrap around me. Back in the room, I find the Mockingjay suit has disappeared. In its place is a paper robe. A meal has been set up from the mysterious kitchen with a container of my medications for dessert. I go ahead and eat the food, take the pills, rub the salve on my skin. I need to focus now on the manner of my suicide. I curl back up on the blood-stained mattress, not cold but feeling so naked with just the paper to cover my tender flesh. Jumping to my death is not an option. The window glass must be a foot thick. I can make an excellent noose, but there's nothing to hang myself from. It's possible I could hoard pills and then knock myself out with a lethal dose, except that I'm sure I'm being watched around the clock. If 
For all I know, I'm on live television at this very moment while commentators try to analyze what could possibly have motivated me to kill Coyne. The surveillance makes almost any suicide attempt impossible. Taking my life is the capital's privilege. Again. What I can do is give up. I resolve to lie on the bed without drinking, eating, or taking my medications. I could do it too, just die, if it weren't for the morphling withdrawal. Not bit by bit, like in the hospital in 13, but cold turkey. I must have been on a fairly large dose because when the craving for it hits, accompanied by tremors and shooting pains and unbearable cold, my resolve is crushed like an eggshell. I'm on my knees, raking the carpet with my fingernails to try to find those precious pills I flung away in a stronger moment. I revise my suicide plan to slow death by morphling. I will become a yellow-skinned bag of bones with enormous eyes. I'm a couple of days into the plan, making good progress, when something unexpected happens. I begin to sing. At the window, in the shower, in my sleep, Hour after hour of ballads, love songs, mountain airs, all the songs my father taught me before he died. For certainly there's been very little music in my life since. What's amazing is how clearly I remember them. The tunes, the lyrics, my voice, at first rough and breaking on the high notes, warms up into something splendid. A voice that would make the Mockingjays fall silent and then tumble over themselves to join in. Days pass, weeks. I watch the snow fall on the ledge outside my window. And then all that time, mine is the only voice I hear. What are they doing, anyway? What's the holdup out there? How difficult can it be to arrange the execution of one murderous girl? I continue with my own annihilation. My body's thinner than it's ever been, and my battle against hunger is so fierce that sometimes the animal part of me gives in to the temptation of buttered bread or roasted meat. But still, I'm winning. For a few days I feel quite unwell and think I may finally be traveling out of this life, when I realize my morphling tablets are shrinking. They're trying to slowly wean me off the stuff. But why? Surely a drugged Mockingjay would be easier to dispose of in front of a crowd. And then a terrible thought hits me. What if they're not going to kill me? What if they've got more plans for me? A new way to remake, train, and use me? I won't do it. If I can't kill myself in this room, I will take the first opportunity outside of it to finish the job. They can fatten me up, they can put on full body polish, dress me up, make me beautiful again. They can design dream weapons that come to life in my hands, but they will never again brainwash me into the necessity of using them. I no longer feel any allegiance to these monsters called human beings. I despise being one myself. I think that Peter was onto something about us destroying one another and letting some decent species take over because something is significantly wrong with a creature that sacrifices its children's lives to settle its differences. You can spin it any way you like. Snow thought the Hunger Games were an efficient means of control. Coin thought the parachutes would expedite the war, but in the end, who does it benefit? No one. 
The truth is, it benefits no one to live in a world where these things happen. After two days of my lying on a mattress with no attempt to eat, drink, or even take a morphling tablet, the door opens. Someone crosses around the bed in my field of vision. Hey, Mitch. Your trial is over, he says. Come on. We're going home. Home? What is he talking about? My home is gone. Even if it were possible to go to this imaginary place, I'm too weak to move. Strangers appear, rehydrate and feed me, bathe and clothe me. One lifts me like a rag doll and carries me up to the roof, onto a hovercraft, and fastens me into a seat. Haymitch and Plutarch sit across from me. In a few moments, we are airborne. I've never seen Plutarch in such a good mood. He's positively glowing. You must have a million questions. When I don't respond, he answers them anyway. After I shot coin, there was pandemonium. When the ruckus died down, they discovered Snow's body, still tethered to the post. Opinions differ on whether he choked to death while laughing or was crushed by the crowd. No one really cares. An emergency election was thrown together, and Paler was voted in as president. Plutarch was appointed Secretary of Communications, which means he sets the programming for the airwaves. The first big televised event was my trial, in which he was also a star witness. In my defense, of course. Although most of the credit for my exoneration must be given to Dr. Aurelius, who apparently earned his naps by presenting me as a hopeless, shell-shocked lunatic. One condition for my release is that I'll continue under his care, although it will have to be by phone, because he would never live in a forsaken place like Twelve, and I'm confined there until further notice. The truth is, no one quite knows what to do with me now that the war is over. Although if another one should spring up, Plutarch is sure they could find a role for me. And then Plutarch has a good laugh. It never seems to bother him that no one else appreciates his jokes. Are you preparing for another war, Plutarch? I ask. No, not now. Now we're in that sweet period where everyone agrees that our recent horrors should never be repeated, he says. But collective thinking is usually short-lived. We're fickle, stupid beings with poor memories and a great gift for self-destruction. Although, who knows? Maybe... Maybe this will be it, Katniss. What? I ask. The time it sticks. Maybe we are witnessing the evolution of the human race. Think about that. And then he asks me if I'd like to perform in a new singing program he's launching in a few weeks. Something upbeat would be good. He'll send the crew to my house. We land briefly in District 3 to drop off Plutarch. He's meeting with Beatty to update the technology on the broadcast system. His parting words to me are, Don't be a stranger! When we're back among the clouds, I look at Haymitch. So, why are you going back to Twelve? They can't seem to find a place for me in the capital either. At first, I don't question this. But doubts begin to creep in. Haymitch hasn't assassinated anyone. He could go anywhere. If he's coming back to Twelve, it's because he's been ordered to. 
You have to look after me, don't you? As my mentor. He shrugs, and then I realize what it means. My mother's not coming back. No, he says. He pulls an envelope from his jacket pocket and hands it to me. I examine the delicate, perfectly formed writing. She's helping to start up a hospital in District 4. She wants you to call as soon as we get in. My finger traces the graceful swoop of the letters. You know why she can't come back? Yes, I know why. Because between my father and Prim and the ashes, the place is too painful to bear. But apparently not for me. Do you want to know who else won't be there? No, I say. I want to be surprised. Like a good mentor, Hamish makes me eat a sandwich and then pretends he believes I'm asleep for the rest of the trip. He busies himself going through every compartment of the hovercraft, finding the liquor and stowing it in his bag. It's night when we land on the green of the victor's village. Half of the houses have lights on in the windows, including Hamish's and mine. Not Peter's. Someone has built a fire in my kitchen. I sit in the rocker before it, clutching my mother's letter. Well, see you tomorrow, says Hamish. As the clinking of his bag of liquor bottles fades away, I whisper, I doubt it. I'm unable to move from the chair. The rest of the house looms cold and empty and dark. I pull an old shawl over my body and watch the flames. I guess I sleep, because the next thing I know it's morning and Greasy Say is banging around at the stove. She makes me eggs and toast and sits there until I've eaten it all. We don't talk much. Her little granddaughter, the one who lives in her own world, takes a bright blue ball of yarn from my mother's knitting basket. Greasy Say tells her to put it back, but I say she can have it. No one in this house can knit anymore. After breakfast, Greasy Say does the dishes and leaves, but comes back at dinner time to make me eat again. I don't know if she's just being neighborly or if she's on the government payroll, but she shows up twice every day. She cooks. I consume. I try to figure out my next move. There's no obstacle now to taking my life, but I seem to be waiting for something. Sometimes the phone rings and rings and rings, but I don't pick it up. Hey, Mitch never visits. Maybe he changed his mind and left, although I suspect he's just drunk. No one comes but Greasy Say and her granddaughter. After months of solitary confinement, they seem like a crowd. Spring's in the air today. You ought to get out, she says. Go hunting. I haven't left the house. I haven't even left the kitchen except to go to the small bathroom a few steps off of it. I'm in the same clothes I left the capital in. What I do is sit by the fire, stare at the unopened letters piling up on the mantel. I don't have a bow. Check down the hall, she says. After she leaves, I consider a trip down the hall, rule it out. But after several hours, I go anyway. 
walking in silent sock feet so as not to awaken the ghosts. In the study, where I had my tea with President Snow, I find a box with my father's hunting jacket. Our plant box, my parents' wedding photo, the spile Hamish sent in, and the locket that Peter gave me in the clock arena. The two bows and a sheath of arrows Gale rescued on the night of the firebombing lie on the desk. I put on the hunting jacket and leave the rest of the stuff untouched. I fall asleep on the sofa in the formal living room. A terrible nightmare follows where I'm lying on the bottom of a deep grave, and every dead person I know by name comes by and throws a shovel of ashes on me. It's quite a long dream, considering the list of people, and the deeper I'm buried, the harder it is to breathe. I try to call out, begging them to stop, but the ashes fill my mouth and nose, and I can't make any sound. Still, the shovel scrapes on and on and on. I wake with a start. Pale morning light comes around the edges of the shutters. The scraping of the shovel continues. Still half in the nightmare, I run down the hall, out the front door and around the side of the house because I'm pretty sure I can scream at the dead now. When I see him, I pull up short. His face is flushed from digging up the ground under the windows. In a wheelbarrow are five scraggly bushes. You're back, I say. Dr. Aurelius wouldn't let me leave the capital until yesterday, Peter says. By the way, he said to tell you that he can't keep pretending that he's taking you forever. You've got to pick up the phone. He looks well. Thin and covered with burn scars like me, but his eyes have lost that clouded, tortured look. He's frowning slightly, though, as he takes me in. I make a half-hearted attempt to push my hair out of my eyes and realize it's matted into clumps. I feel defensive. What are you doing? I went into the woods this morning and dug these up. For her. I thought that we could plant them along the side of the house. I look at the bushes. The clouds of dirt hang from their roots. And I catch my breath as the word rose registers. I'm about to yell vicious things at Peter when the full name comes to me. Not plain rose, but evening primrose. The flower my sister was named for. I give Peter a nod of assent and hurry back into the house, locking the door behind me. But the evil thing is inside, not out. Trembling with weakness and anxiety, I run up the stairs. My foot catches on the last step and I crash into the floor. I force myself to rise and enter my room. The smell's very faint, but still laces the air. It's there. The white rose among the dried flowers in the vase. Shriveled and unnatural, but holding on to that unnatural perfection cultivated in Snow's greenhouse. I grab the vase, stumble down to the kitchen, and throw its contents into the embers. As the flowers flare up, a burst of blue flame envelops the rose and devours it. Fire beats rose again. I smash the vase on the floor for good measure. Back upstairs, I throw open the windows to clear out the rest of Snow's stench. But still it lingers, on my clothes and in my pores. I strip, and flakes of skin the size of playing cards cling to the garments. Avoiding the mirror, I step to the shower and scrub the roses from my hair, from my body, from my mouth. Bright pink and tingling, I find something clean to wear. 
It takes me half an hour to comb out my hair. Greasy Say unlocks the front door. While she makes breakfast, I feed the clothes I had shed to the fire. At her suggestion, I pare off my nails with a knife. Over the eggs, I ask her, Where did Gail go? District 2. Got some fancy job there. I see him now and again on the television, she says. I dig around inside myself, trying to register anger, hatred, longing. I find only relief. I'm going hunting today, I say. Well, I wouldn't mind some fresh game at that. I arm myself with a bow and arrows and head out, intending to exit 12 through the meadow. Near the square are teams of masked and gloved people with horse-drawn carts, sifting through what lay under the snow this winter, gathering remains. A cart's parked in front of the mayor's house. I recognize Tom, Gail's old crewmate, pausing a moment to wipe the sweat from his face with a rag. I remember seeing him in 13, but he must have come back. His greeting gives me the courage to ask, Did they find anyone in there? Whole family. And the two people who worked for them. Madge. Quiet and kind and brave. The girl who gave me that pin that gave me my name. I swallow hard. I wonder if she'll be joining the cast of my nightmares tonight. Shoveling the ashes into my mouth. I thought maybe since he was the mayor. I don't think being the mayor of twelve put the odds in his favor, says Tom. I nod and keep moving, careful not to look back at the cart. All through the town in the seam, it's the same. The reaping of the dead. As I near the ruins of my old house, the road becomes thick with carts. The meadow's gone, or at least dramatically altered. A deep pit has been dug, and they are lining it with bones. A mass grave for my people. I skirt around the hole and into the woods at my usual pace. It doesn't matter, though. The fence isn't charged anymore and has been propped up with long branches to keep out the predators. But old habits die hard. I think about going to the lake, but I'm so weak that I barely make it to my meeting place with Gale. I sit on the rock where Cressida filmed us, but it's too wide without his body beside me. Several times I close my eyes and count to ten, thinking that when I open them, he will have materialized without a sound, as he so often did. I have to remind myself that Gail's in two with a fancy job, probably kissing another pair of lips. It's the old Katniss's favorite kind of day. Early spring, the woods awakening after a long winter. But the spurt of energy that began with the primroses fades away. By the time I make it back to the fence, I'm sick and dizzy. Tom has to give me a ride home in the dead people's cart. Help me to the sofa in the living room, where I watch the dust motes spin in thin shafts of afternoon light. My head snaps around at the hiss, but it takes a while to believe he's real. How could he have gotten in here? I take in the claw marks from some wild animal, the back paw that he holds slightly above the ground, prominent bones in his face. He's come on foot, then. All the way from 13. 
Maybe they kicked him out, or maybe he was just unable to stand it there anymore without her. So he came looking. It was a waste of a trip. She's not here, I tell him. Buttercup hisses again. She's not here. You can hiss all you like, you won't find Prim. At her name, he perks up, raises his flattened ears, begins to meow, hopefully. Get out! He dodges the pillow I throw at him. Go away! There's nothing left for you here! I start to shake, furious with him. She's not coming back! She's never, ever coming back here again! I grab another pillow and get to my feet to improve my aim. Out of nowhere, the tears begin to pour down my cheeks. She's dead! I clutch my middle to dull the pain, sink down under my heels, rocking the pillow, crying. She's dead! You stupid cat, she's dead! A new sound, part crying, part singing, comes out of my body, giving voice to my despair. Buttercup begins to wail as well. No matter what I do, he won't go. He circles me just out of reach after wave and wave and wave of sobs racks my body until eventually I fall unconscious. But he must understand. He must know that the unthinkable has happened and to survive will require previously unthinkable acts. Because hours later, when I come to in my bed, he's there in the moonlight. Crouched beside me, yellow eyes alert, guarding me from the night. In the morning, he sits stoically as I clean the cuts, but digging the thorn from his paw brings on a round of those kitten mews. We both end up crying again. Only this time we comfort each other. On the strength of this, I open up the letter that Haymitch gave me from my mother, dial the phone number, and I weep with her as well. Peta, bearing a warm loaf of bread, shows up with greasy say. She makes us breakfast, and I feed all my bacon to Buttercup. Slowly, with many lost days, I come back to life. I try to follow Dr. Aurelius's advice, just going through the motions, amazed when one finally has meaning again. I tell him my idea about the book, and a large box of parchment sheets arrives on the next train from the capital. I got the idea from our family's plant book, the place where we recorded those things you cannot trust to memory. The page begins with the person's picture. A photo, if we can find it, if not, a sketch or painting by Peta. Then, in my most careful handwriting, come all the details it would be a crime to forget. Lady licking Prim's cheek, my father's laugh, Peta's father with the cookies, the color of Finnick's eyes. What sin it could do with a length of silk? Boggs reprogramming the hollow. Rue poised on her toes, arms slightly extended like a bird about to take flight. On and on. We seal the pages with salt water and promises to live well to make their deaths count. Hamish finally joins us, contributing 23 years of tributes he was forced to mentor. Additions become smaller. An old memory that surfaces, a late primrose preserved between the pages. Strange bits of happiness, like the photo of Finnick and Annie's newborn son. We learn to keep busy again. 
Peter bakes, I hunt. Hamish drinks until the liquor runs out and then raises geese until the next train arrives. Fortunately, the geese can take pretty good care of themselves. We're not alone. A few hundred others return because whatever has happened, this is our home. With the mines closed, they plow the ashes into the earth and plant food. Machines from the capital break ground for a new factory where we will make medicines. Although no one seeds it, the meadow turns green again. Peter and I grow back together. There are still moments where he clutches the back of a chair and hangs on till the flashbacks are over. I wake screaming from nightmares of mutts and lost children. But his arms are there to comfort me. And eventually, his lips. On the night that I feel that thing again, the hunger that overtook me on the beach, I know this would have happened anyway. That what I need to survive is not Gale's fire, kindled with rage and hatred. I've got plenty of fire myself. What I need is the dandelion in the spring. The bright yellow that means rebirth instead of destruction. The promise that life can go on, no matter how bad our losses. That it can be good again. And only Peter can give me that. So after, when he whispers, You love me, real or not real, I tell him, Real. Epilogue They play in the meadow. The dancing girl with the dark hair and blue eyes, the boy with blonde curls and gray eyes, struggling to keep up with her on his chubby toddler legs. It took five, ten, fifteen years for me to agree. But Peter wanted them so badly. When I first felt her stirring inside me, I was consumed with a terror that felt as old as life itself. Only the joy of holding her in my arms could tame it. Carrying him was a little easier, but not much. The questions are just the beginning. The arenas have been completely destroyed. The memorials built. There are no more hunger games. But they teach about them at school. And the girl knows that we played a role in them. The boy will know in a few years. How can I tell them about a world like that without frightening them to death? My children who take the words of the song for granted. Deep in the meadow, under the willow, a bed of grass, a soft green pillow, Lay down your head and close your sleepy eyes, and when they again open, the sun will rise. Here it's safe, here it's warm, here the daisies guard you from every harm. 
Here your dreams are sweet and tomorrow brings them true. Here is the place where I love you. My children who don't know that they play on a graveyard. Peter says it will be okay. We have each other and the book. We can make them understand in a way that will make them braver. But one day I'll have to explain about my nightmares. Why they come. Why they won't ever really go away. I'll tell them how I survived it. I'll tell them that on bad mornings it feels impossible to take pleasure in anything because I'm afraid it could be taken away. That's when I make a list in my head of every act of goodness I've seen someone do. It's like a game. Repetitive. Even a little tedious after more than twenty years. But there are much worse games to play. That was pretty abrupt, wasn't it? I'm going to have to work on that one in the edit. Folks, thank you so very much for joining me. Don't forget, everyone, before we launch, before we jump in, we talk about this a little bit. Don't forget a few things. We have got Book Fair coming up at the end of September. Last week of September, that's going to be Book Fair, our big yearly stream extravaganza. It's still terrible. Still going to use it. We've also had our soft opening. We're going to have a full opening during uh, during Book Fair, but our soft opening of the Realms of Recidus Discord server, the RP and Adventure server. I've been working hard on it. Uh, I hope that y'all have a chance to go check it out. Uh, if you want a chance to just peek in there, go ahead and head on over to the full Sidecar Stories Discord. Uh, you can use the links command at any time. Linktree slash Sidecar Stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. Um, that is the link to follow. That is the link to share. Head to the Discord. Uh, you can find the link to the new Discord over there as well. I don't want to put those too publicly yet. I may I may have to. I, I, I may end up doing it, but uh, not at the moment. So I just wanted to make sure I cover those things. Uh, book fair coming up. I'm really looking forward to our next series coming up. Um, on, our, uh, on Vintage Sidecar, we have got the Sherlock Holmes series. That is going to be our next read through there. Our next read-through for this show. This is, of course, Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Our next venture here is going to be The Lord of the Rings. I hope you all are ready. It's one I didn't feel ready for for quite some time. Please tell your friends. If you've got friends who love Lord of the Rings, please tell them about it. I would love to bring them in here. Um, I'm already in discussions with bringing uh, with with some folks to bring on some additional voices because, as y'all may remember, if you're looking for a bit of a teaser, um, we did a, the first chapter of Lord of the Rings for a stream during Book Fair last year. And if you want to know how you can find those, well, don't forget everybody, 
book fair means that I release all of the all of the new stuff uh, available to everyone, which means that everyone, if you missed that, if you want to find out what book fair is all about, those are going to be available very soon. Um, if you all want to know what we're going to be doing with our Thursdays until book fair comes up, I don't know if it's going to be all of them, but I think I like the idea of doing a premiere of, of uh, both Lord of the Rings and of... Uh, of Sherlock Holmes during book fair. It seems like the timing would be great because that's going to give us a little bit of time on Thursdays to do some watch parties. I would love to do some watch parties with you all. So if you want to jump back in here uh, and continue to hang out on Thursdays, these, these Hunger Games books have been regarded as turned into pretty good movies as having been turned into pretty good movies so um i would like to watch those with y'all um i know discard discord is going to play some part in that uh i don't know precisely what the what the sort of format of that all is going to be but uh join me join me in discord uh that is the spot to catch up with all things sidecar stories of course as i mentioned linktree slash sidecar stories l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash sidecar stories That'll get you there. That's the one to, to share around with any of your friends who like Sherlock Holmes, who like Lord of the Rings, come on now, who like doing fun RP stuff in a world that we created ourselves. That's the link to follow. We've got a dedicated uh, uh, book fair channel that is currently open. Um, you can find that over there in Discord if you want to put in suggestions. We're going to be holding votes in the coming weeks about what we're going to be doing during book fair. Man, I'm so excited. <laughs> um, let's see. Yu says, wow, I've never read Lord of the Rings. I'm excited. I am glad to hear it, Yu. Big Mama says, I don't know how I feel about Lord of the Rings. I've never made it through a chapter or a movie. Complete newbie. Well, I hope you're excited about that as well. <laughs> um, Van Saves Live says, I think the movies were excellent adaptations. I think we're talking about Hunger Games again. The first is a bit toothless, but still good. And they got better with time. Y'all, I'm really looking forward to this stuff. Uh, and I guess I don't I don't know why I feel the need to like jump on into the next thing because we're already doing it. We've already made our transition. Uh chat, let's talk about this series, huh? Let's talk about these books. Um, that ending. How do we feel about the ending here? Um <laughs> Louise says, beautiful end to a sad story. Um, it is it is a beautiful end, isn't it? It's it's idyllic. I don't know how to pronounce that word. I've only ever seen it in writing. Um, it's idyllic. That's definitely not it. It's got to not be it, right? Katniss decides um, that children are in her future after all. Now, of course, the situation has changed dramatically. This big thing that caused her to insist that she would never have children, it was the Hunger Games, but the Hunger Games are fortunately disbanded. They're over. They're, they are no more. 75 years of history in this country of Hunger Games, and they're over. So Katniss feels that anxiety. Katniss feels the fear that she's always associated with children I'm, I'm watching, watching chat try to do that impossible thing, which is try to instruct Sam on pronunciation via text. It just, it just isn't going to happen, my good friends. Uh, Van Saves Lives might be coming close. Idyllic? Idyllic? <laughs> uh, yeah, y'all, it is... 
it's a cold ending. It, it feels cold to me um, until the epilogue, right? Um, the epilogue brings back a bit of warmth, but prior to that, and, and frankly, sort of it feels like the, the majority of the ending feels very cold to me. Katniss must struggle from those things that she experienced, right? I think, I think to to have this be like a big, you know, to, to have it to have this end in parades or something like that would have been absolutely a disservice to to her journey to what she went through. That would be that would be ridiculous. I think this coldness might be one of the only ways that a story like this could end and this is one of the things that once again i'm glad that this story doesn't shy away from you know we could go to the we could go to, to the parades to the like happily ever after kind of immediately we we could do that that would be a possibility it would be it would be a way for this story to sort of feel like oh okay you know i as an author i don't want to leave you feeling too bad i want you to kind of walk away from this feeling like oh yeah the you know good guys won and and that's it that's that's all the story that needs to be told but we've said it a lot i've said it a lot during this story we don't shy away in this one from how painful it is to do something like this. And I think it, it serves this genre of stories much better to express that stuff, to, to watch somebody actually experience it. Proteus Spade says, I really don't know how I feel about this ending. I don't dislike it. If it's the characters, it makes sense. It hits emotions right, but the, and here's their kids and all as well, epilogues never hit right for me. I could appreciate the explorations of the non-stop self-therapy. I don't know. You've got a good point there, Proteus Spade, right? And, and that is kind of ultimately the question, right? Can you end a story well and faithfully? I, I've thought about this a lot as I have... Oh, you, you have a great night. Thanks for being here. Good to have you here. <laughs> have a great night. I've thought about this a lot as I've kind of explored my coming to terms with the real world, um, which sounds very dramatic, I'm sure. But um, I loved, loved reading as a kid. And um, that, it's not so much that I was addicted to books or addicted to fantasy as much as I found myself very much addicted to narrative. Narrative has structures and traditions, of course. It's got patterns that make it recognizable and make certain things um, uh, easier to expect coming up. But that's the trouble with narrative, is that narrative is narrative is a format, much in the same way that real life, no matter how, how skillfully a painting depicts its subject, real life doesn't happen on a canvas, much in the same way as, as fantastically as a as 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 skillfully as a narrative can express an idea real life does not happen in that narrative form and so my question can you can you end a story with skill and legitimacy are those two things kind of at odds with one another because ending a story well, ending a story as a talented writer means a satisfying ending, something that is something that is final. And yet telling a story faithfully, faithfully to real life, almost demands that you don't 
give a sense of finality because there is no endings. There are, there are no endings in life. Not even death oftentimes is truly the end of someone's story because of the impact that they have had on the world, depending on the themes that you're trying to explore with that person's life, their death might not be the end of it. Consider The Great Gatsby, for instance, right? That's, that's one of the ones that we read here on this channel. His story does not end with his death. Is it, is it possible to end a story both faithfully to real life and also to end it with some sort of narrative talent? I think those two things kind of butt heads against one another. Like Proteus Spade says, that process of like nonstop self-therapy, that is, I mean, it's a good line, right? But we also, we also wouldn't read just another book of this because that's not an ending, right? That's not an ending. Um, we wouldn't read another book of this that, that is Katniss sort of like just kind of gently processing stuff in her own mind. I, I'm sure there are interesting things that could be done, but it would have to introduce new complications and new conflicts. We couldn't just watch the years, the 20 years of Katniss doing this sort of like self-therapy and therapy with others and, and uh, you know, relying on support systems. That's, that's not so much a story. That would make it tough. Um, Vance's Lies says, it isn't poorly written or anything. It feels intentional. I just don't love how things end and where relationships land, especially with Hamish and Gale. Um, Van. Some interesting names brought up there. Uh, I would be curious to know who else in chat has got other stories, other endings in this that um, that that they want to discuss, whether they liked it or disliked it. Um, because I think those are two big ones, right? This whole story is it's about this this horrible trauma that all these characters went through. It's about this terrible event that they all lived through and participated in. And so these endings, although we have expressed that this is ultimately Katniss's story. The endings are a really important part of this. You know, they are with every story, but, you know, uh, with uh, with The Hobbit, you know, you, you, Bilbo gets his gold, he heads home, we could spend some time with him on his way home, or we could just sort of watch him go off into the sunrise. Either way, we could be pretty satisfied with that ending. With this, with this, these endings are, are vital. Partially because... In, in in other books, it's oftentimes about how do they overcome the challenge, and the challenge being, you know, something fairly temporary, something fairly immediate. With this, it is it is to topple a system that sits over top of their entire lives, right? 75 years this has been going on. All the characters that we know here are younger than the Hunger Games. All the, all the named characters that we've experienced here, all of them are younger than the Hunger Games. Every single person we've met in these, they've existed with Hunger Games as part of their entire lives. They have never known a world without Hunger Games. And so this series is about changing not only your fate, but the fate of everyone around you. This is about changing the future. It's about changing how your story ends. So much of this book is, is about looking forward to, uh, you know, Katniss looking forward with, with deep anxiety as to what her future will look like. Can't have kids. She, she would not accept it. She would not accept that she would have kids because then they would be part of this system, part of this future that she sees, which includes the Hunger Games. That's what a lot of this series is about, is what, what, are they, what, what future are they building for themselves? What future are they tearing down? And then what future are they building for themselves? And so these endings are wildly important. 
Van, Vancey's has mentioned Hamish and Gale. I want to I want to dig into these a little bit deeper. Proteus Spade says, yeah, Hamish just falls off of a narrative cliff and kind of stops existing. I guess he got geese, says Proteus Spade. Um, and I, I, I want to make it clear. I think... I think we could, you know, we, we could have sort of like broken broken rank here, broken style, and uh, jumped into a slightly more omniscient perspective. Uh, we could have followed, you know, some of these histories about like, you know, where, where is Hamish when they've got these kids? Do, is there, could there have been a mention of, yeah, Hamish, Hamish passed about five years after the events of this. Um, uh, here's here's what his, the remainder of his life was like, that kind of stuff. Um, or... Yeah, hey, we got Uncle Hamish, and the kids hang out with Uncle Hamish. He's real old at this point, but he's doing what he can. We could have broken form here, and I, I would say that would not necessarily automatically be a a mark of a better book or a better series. Not automatically, but as as viewers, as people who have who are experiencing this, um, we are you know some of us have got questions about some of these people. That idea of falling off a narrative cliff, I, I think there's something to be said about that, um, that, that point of dissatisfaction. Definitely. For Hamish, like I said, we, all of these people here, every, everyone that we know from this series, they've, they've lived their whole lives with Hunger Games present. Um, for Hamish, it seems... You know, his story is a little bit different from Katniss. Katniss has hope that this could change at some point. Whereas Hamish, well, he probably dropped that off 25 years ago when he won his Hunger Games and he sort of uh, rebelled in his own tiny way against the Capitol and they punished him so thoroughly for it. It's been 25 years that he has believed that all he can do is try to help a few kids survive or die as quickly as possible with as little suffering as he can and then drink enough that he can't remember any of it. He's lived a long life of this. Where does this land him? Having made this impossible change, a change that Katniss at many points believed was possible, but Hamish doesn't really indicate he ever really, really did. How does his story really end? Proteus Spade says... Um, oh, excuse me, Vance's Live says, that's my biggest complaint. His disappearance feels wrong. Um, uh, Jade says, uh, the end of the story should feel just like the end of a chapter. Interesting. Uh, Jade, like, you, you want some, I, I mean, are you, are you asking for more cliffhangers? Is that what you want, Jade? I have a feeling that uh, that our author here, Suzanne Collins, would not mind. Uh, Pretty Spade says, I want to know more about what the hell happened to this weird country, but Katniss doesn't really care. She doesn't feel agency in it, so she doesn't express interest in it, um, where it's not a threat to her and her loved ones. So, since this is her story, who knows? Indeed, and and uh, you know, I like it, like I said, you know, there are points that we can kind of criticize this or or talk about, you know, points of dissatisfaction for ourselves reading it. Um, Gail, Haymitch, uh, even PETA somewhat, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more about that. But, but let's talk about this from the perspective of its intent, right? Let's talk about it in terms of how, how Suzanne Collins wanted to write it. The intent was clearly to keep this in Katniss's point of view. This is a very personal story. As much as it is a story of, you know, a, a rebellion and, and, uh, taking down, power structures of exploitation. 
it's the story of Katniss Everdeen. This one person, this one, this one human. About how much she lost to ensure a better future. Whether she was able to enjoy that future that she built for herself. How she feels about the, the, that possible future that she saw way back when. That, that future that involves the Hunger Games. That, that, that future that she destroyed. Jade Dragon says, just like real life, the story doesn't have to end. You just make up more in your head. Or am I the only one that does that? No, I mean, Jade, I think there are definitely people who are going to sort of like create the, the, the next chapters. But like, you know, like Into the Woods, for instance, that's kind of a a fun, very explicit explo uh, exploration, not exploitation, exploration of the obvious fact that these stories don't end when when you see this screen here. When you see a screen that looks something like this, this screen doesn't really mean the end. You know, if we if we sort of consider this from a uh, what what is it the Watsonian sense, <laughs> this isn't really the end. Katniss is still alive at the end of this, so she's got more life to live. What do those conversations go like that she talks about? She she mentions these conversations about um, uh, you know where her nightmares come from, why they probably won't ever really go away. What do these conversations go like? How do her children react to this world post-Hunger Games? They learn what happened just before they were born. Purdy Spade says, Can I say that 75 to 85 years seems to be a bit of a magic number range for, quote, the characters are now fully immersed in a post-crisis setting, end quote. It's no coincidence that Fallout uses the same number on all of its major time skips. One is set 84 years after the bombs. Number two is set 80-ish years later. <laughs> New Vegas is set 80-ish years after two. It's a number where people feel like things have been around forever, with three or four generations since whatever change took place. It's a good use of the rule, set your story as late as possible. Yeah, and and it it is, there is a sense that things are established, right? That things are potentially immovable, unchangeable. It's one of those things where, you know, you can tell a sci-fi story about, yeah, uh, in this world, um, uh, you know, there's no gravity, so people just sort of float around. Um, and when you're telling a story that's sort of got sci-fi bent like that, you don't really need to know how it is because people aren't rebelling against it. They don't need to have any ingrained sense of whether or not it's possible to change this thing. When we're talking about power, and uh, and exploitation and uh, uh, I mean villains. At the end of the day, we're talking about villains, but but um, bad people. Okay, so here's here's something I don't. I think I may have talked about it on on stream before, but I have a sort of there's a, there's a motif. There's a there's a a trope that comes up call that I call the dark house. It is really, it is a horrifying environment that comes about as a result of slow negligence or acceptance of, of those conditions. Um, stories, it can be small, like stories about, um, uh, you know, abuse or what have you. Uh, for instance, Harry Potter under the stairs um, and his horrible treatment at the hands of, of his, you know, adoptive parents, I suppose you could say. Um, that's sort of a that's a dark house. It's it's the sort of thing where it comes up over time. You know, you don't imagine that they necessarily started treating this baby that way, but 
over time, it's something that he accepts, they accept. Um, they don't really assign moral judgments to it necessarily, or if they do, they sort of ignore them. And that is that is the essence of a dark house. It is this this idea that I see in the real world and in fiction. Um, and the the nation of Panem is just this enormous dark house. It is this enormous place where um, moral moral judgments have been postponed or delayed or ignored um, in favor of quiet complacency and uh, acceptance and uh, a really devastating compromise. This enormous nationwide dark house of Pan Am has accepted for such a long time that the Hunger Games are simply part of the, the part of this world. And I think what you're talking about here, Proteus Spade, this idea of, you know, 75 or 85 years, when we're talking about something that's not gravity, something that's not sci-fi or fantasy, like people can do magic, when we're talking about things that need to be changed, like this power structure, like like opening up some windows in this dark house and letting some light in, we're talking about things like that, there needs to be a proximity to it so that we realize it's not simply part of the way that literally the world has always been. It's something different than that. It is something that could be different. As a matter of fact, it was different just, just a little while ago. 75 to 85 years, I think, because of its, because of, um, like you said, that generational issue, right? The pe me, me as the protagonist and the people that I know around me, all of them sort of consider this a part of life. And yet we are aware of a different way that life could be. We are aware of it and then we ignore it. We make these compromises, these moral compromises, uh, uh, in, and in favor of just just letting life go on and with that that is how light slowly and slowly and slowly gets squeezed out until you've got this thing this dark house Proteus Spade says new enough to feel changeable old enough to be an entrenched status quo despite that yeah yeah that that sort of that status quo with that little asterisk next to it right it's, it is status quo it is it's just the way things are and so you can tell stories like no gravity or uh, or interstellar travel is real or magic is real. These, these are all just the way things are. But when you give it, you know, 75 or 85 years, when you're talking about something like, uh, you know, power structures, when you're talking about uh, a rebellion and whatever power structure needs to be rebelled against, that's where you want. This is just the way things are with an asterisk. with an asterisk and that asterisk goes down to a little footnote at the bottom of the page that says but not by necessity it's just the way things are but not by necessity or just the way things are but not how they always were or just the way things are but not how they need to be not how they could be that little asterisk that's what we get. That's what 85 years is an asterisk. There we go. There's uh, for Frankenstein. Um, my, <laughs> I think my favorite uh, ridiculous uh, line lacking context was let us consider once again, Sean Bean. That was my favorite from that one. And I think this one for me is an asterisk is 75 to 85 years. <laughs> an asterisk is 80 years. <laughs> there we go. My grand folks, it has been, you're all my grand folks. <laughs> Hey, hey, grand folks. Um, wonderful people. It has been an absolute joy. 
Uh, I will remind you, head on over to Discord. Uh, I have got some more character approvals to go through tonight. We've got some more original characters that are jumping into the realms of Resetus. Uh Welcome aboard the airship, the Pine Pelican. Uh, you've got adventures to go on there solo if you want to just explore the server you've got people to meet items to find uh events to trigger um you have got rp to do with other members of that server and then very soon um as in like this weekend uh i'm going to be doing some adventuring with you all as well i'm going to be leading some adventures uh you can you can anticipate those are definitely going to start off text-based but i would also love in the future to do like formal like Hey, I'm going to let you all know in one week on Tuesday at 6 p.m. We're going to meet up in Discord and I'm going to run an adventure for whoever's there at the time. So uh, hop on over there. It's going to be a ton of fun. Vance's Live says, happy to have been here for another finale. And I am very happy to have had you all. Proteus Spade, uh, Monkey, Kerfos, Van, y'all. Jade, uh, it's been absolutely wonderful to have you all here. Big Mama, everybody, thank you so much. Oh boy, I'm gonna be emotional after this one. I can tell. Um, stream the stream energy sort of like puts a little bit of a damper on things, puts it puts a a muffler on the emotions. Um, but I can definitely tell. Like this this series, this series was important. I'm really glad that we read this one. Uh, the timing I think is fairly significant. I I will remind you all the big thing that I want to take away from this um, as much as I as much as I adore the discussion of the literary themes and strategies uh, and skill used in creating something like this as much as I love that there's that thing that I want to remind you all of the thing we talked about it a lot during during Harry Potter we talked about it a lot on this one remember the small fight all right Remember the small fight. Uh, don't ignore those little moral compromises that we all feel waiting for us, that we all feel that we could just close our eyes for 30 seconds and then it'll be gone. Don't ignore them. Don't let those get past you. Those little moral moments, those little moral judgments. That's, that's how we end up with a dark house. And I'll remind you all, it is kind of all of us making our own, making our own moral judgments here uh, that that prevent something like this from happening. We got to make those judgments as opposed to just letting them pass us by. Do not forget the small fight. It's going to come in the forms of all these little decisions to make, not in not in not in one big shot that you have to take with a with a uh, crazy sci-fi bow and arrow. It's not going to come down to that for most of us, for darn near any of us. What it's going to come down to is the small fight. Lots of small decisions to make and not ignore. I love y'all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> y'all, here's to 15 seasons. That is a wrap on season 15 of Flying Sidecar. Ooh, boy, that's a big number. Ooh, that's a hefty number. Um, I'll see you all for season 16, Lord of the Rings. Fellowship of the Ring. We're going to raid on over. If you would like to join the raid, you do not have to press anything. Just uh, hang out, and we can head on over there. And uh, y'all, it's been grand to have you here. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I will see you next week uh we've got uh, another wednesday we've got more adventuring to do in the realms of Resetus, and i'll see you before then over in discord and in the rp server i'll see you later